Welcome back to Saved by the Spell. Trigger warning, this episode contains content related to drugs, alcohol, and abuse. So, September 4th, 2016 is officially my sober birthday. And as of September 4th, 2021, I will have five years sober. I never in my life imagined A, living this long at 44, B, being free from any kind of substance. Um, I wanted to share with you my journey just as a reference point in case any of you out there are struggling with your own version of addiction, if you just needed to hear someone else's story, because I know for me, I really benefit when I hear other people's journeys. And even if you're not, just to give you something to take to your heart, even if it is not with a substance addiction. There are many addictions. So I want to share with you what it was like, what happened, and where I'm at today with it. Because I do believe that there is no right or wrong way, and everyone's journey is different. And there are definitely people out there, as some of us like to call normies, that don't have a, quote, problem, (laughs) you know, quote, unquote, problem. But I know I definitely have struggled my entire life. And let me begin by telling you that I do believe I was born an addict Um, my mother struggled with addiction and definitely, um, from her own lips to my ears told me that she used during her pregnancy. So I was born, uh, very small on the small side, not premature, but small, only like six pounds, um, you know, with, uh, developmental issues in terms of physicality things because of her addiction. So I was born and almost died at six months old because of lung issues sustained from development with her using um, drugs, alcohol, nicotine during her pregnancy with me. And I almost died, but I didn't. I will say that it impacted a lot of things for me physically growing up, even down to um, being hospitalized every winter until up into 12 years old because I would have an episode with pneumonia or my asthma. didn't stop me from smoking though. (laughs) So, you know, how do you know you're an addict? I think when I was younger, like I, so I love to tell the story of, especially in particularly like recovery meetings, which I'll get into that in a second. But my first drink and my first drunk, I was five years old. And this is like the problem to me was very clear 
because at five years old, I was really good at getting in to different cupboards and things and binging. Um, my mom and my dad, my adopted dad were young. They were rock and roll. They were partiers. And, you know, at five years old, two things happened. One Christmas morning, I sniffed out a five pound box of chocolates that I proceeded. It was the only thing I opened under the Christmas tree and proceeded to eat the whole thing. And they found me sick. (laughs) Um, no self-control. And then, you know, what, a couple weeks later or, you know, New Year's party the next morning on New Year's Day, I went around and drank all of the empties and the remnants of what was left in the champagne glasses or beer bottles or shot glasses. And again, they found me sick in the middle of the floor. And, you know, they thought it was hilarious. Um, To me, that would have signaled (laughs) maybe should keep an eye on her, but that, that wasn't how it was then, especially because everyone around me was an addict or partying. It was very normal. And, um, you know, I always felt different. I always felt like I'm not from here. I don't belong here. It was really painful being in a body and it still is at times, especially when big feelings come up especially unpleasant ones. And, um, you know, at eight years old, I tried to take my life because I was so depressed and no one could tell me why. And then around 12, I started actively, it was definitely 12, I started actively smoking regularly, cigarettes, smoking weed and drinking. Not far after that, 13, I started abusing drugs like cocaine and, you know, tripping on mescaline and acid, whatever was around. And I went to my first rave and I felt so free. Oh, I think regardless of my upbringing, I probably would have found my connection to substance because It was more, yes, the environment kind of fueled certain things, but I think it was more my desire to check out and, you know, put me on a path of a lot of annihilation of self. So I began heavily using, especially during my teens. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, like, again, escaping the self. I never felt comfortable in my own body. I've always had extreme anxiety. I mean, I was 14 when they put me on anxiety, like Xanax, and, you know, never felt. And and also, I didn't know anything about my biological lineage from my biological father. I didn't know about my sensitivities. I didn't know about my autism. You know, these were not things that they explored, um, you know, or looked into. There was no therapy. So what did I do? I became wild and I wanted the pain to stop. And, you know, I think it's really a sign of those times where it became also a rite of passage to, you know, be in maybe very sketchy circumstances. And I've definitely had those. And I had so many things that brought me pain 
And I guess I'll share that here. And I don't, I've never shared this publicly, but, um, you know, at 16, it was my first time having sex and it was definitely a mixed, uh, bag of wanting to have this rite of passage, but also being too drunk to kind of really make a conscious decision about it. And, um, so it was, I don't think when you're that drunk, it should, it's not consensual, you know? And, uh, I got pregnant and I had an abortion and then I got kicked out of my house and I like lived with my grandmother for a little while, but then the drugs and alcohol, like the abuse really picked up and it was more drugs at that point because I could felt like I was on top of the world with it. Um, and that was hard two years of trying to kill myself, not consciously, but definitely subconsciously with the abuse. So it was pretty bad. At 18, I overdosed after a wild weekend of participating in a house robbery and just doing anything I could to get a fix. And then I got robbed by the people that I was robbing the house with. And then they, the other person got robbed by the other person. And they dropped me off in downtown Providence. And um, a friend from that time found me wandering around. They found me wandering and they knew one number for me because there was no cell phones at this point in 1995. And he called my grandmother, and my grandmother picked me up and brought me to Rhode Island Hospital. I don't remember much. I don't remember the ride. I don't remember things like that. But I remember what felt like hands pushing me back into my body through my shoulders, like Nadia. <laughs> And when I came to, there was like a bright light over me. It felt like an interrogation and they were asking me all these questions and I just said, I need help. Now, at that time, there wasn't much in terms of help except there was a treatment center in Falmouth, Mass. And I was like, fine, I, I really need help. And it was also because they were like, you either have to go get help or you have to also like deal with the consequences of being part of this robbery because I was one of the people that they knew were involved and the person whose place it was, I, they were going to press charges if I didn't, didn't go to therapy to help, get help. So I went and it was brutal. And it was the first time I was introduced to AA as a program, Alcoholics Anonymous and you know, I, I wasn't ready. I couldn't hear anything. I'm also not good with tough love. So when there was like harshness, it only made me want to get out of there more. So I left. After the allotted amount of time, they wanted me to go into a halfway house. And I said, no, instead I moved into an apartment with, you know, people I used to party with, but I stayed sober for the most part, I didn't do any drugs. And I did, I didn't do any drugs. 
Um, but I was a mess and I was angry and enraged and I wasn't processing anything. You know, I wasn't doing therapy or anything. So while I abstained from drugs, once I turned 21, I started drinking regularly I got my own apartment and I would work retail, worked in a vintage store for like 10 years and it was all like under the table, cash in hand. So I could just go to the bar and drink and nobody, nobody thought anything of it. You know, I also thought like, well, it's not drugs, you know, quickly. It's like, I realized that no matter any time I drink, I black out. I'm one of those, I black out drink. It doesn't matter if it's one or 20, you know, and, you know, I was into a lot of different stuff and the crew and people I hung out with, there was a lot of rock and roll people. I stayed away from the rave stuff, um, because I didn't want to get back into drugs. And I started hanging out with like more musicians and I was go-go dancing for a surf, like garage band. And I was go-go dancing for a fetish club. And, you know, I was like letting myself get paid in drinks and also I was an artist. I mean, I still am, but like I lived in an artist community in Providence and, um, you know, when you're an artist and especially there, it was like, no one bats an eye at the excessiveness, you know, no one batted an eye at my excessiveness or my weird behavior. And, you know, it wasn't till, I mean, I knew I was sensitive too. And that was the other thing when I overdosed, all the lights came on and I couldn't shut it down. So a lot of the drinking for me was about escaping. Again, I still didn't see it as a problem because nobody, nobody ever questioned it, you know. And I did a lot of crazy stuff. Vandalism was a big part of my drinking period, like being buck wild through Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> and just being out of control. And I was a super extrovert at the time. I moved to New York and I got really dry and I stopped using everything, but I was miserable. And I, that was the point where things shifted and I went more introverted and was really unhappy. Then after a trip to Venezuela and California, I got back to New York where I was living after being there for just like two and a half years, I was in New York. And I was miserable, you know. I was working late nights, multiple jobs, but I was so unhappy. I moved to L.A. on a whim. You know, I moved with two suitcases, a carry-on, and my laptop on a whim. And I knew a couple that lived in the South Bay, and that was it. And then after about a month, it was so painful because nothing was clicking. Um, I met my first roommate in Echo Park. And with that friendship, that roommate situation, came a whole bunch of new friends and an instant community of like-minded artists and weirdos and fun people and also a lot of drinking. <laughs> and I slipped back into drugs. I have to say that no matter how many times I've hit bottom, nothing prepared me for living in a sober way. 
And let me just say, I'd go through phases of quitting, but it never ended. And I would really just lose myself. It was just easier to deal. Again, you know, at the same time, my work was changing. And, you know, I have to say, I relapsed and I had another near-death experience. In 2009, I relapsed on drugs and I tried to drive my car into a tree. Um, I begged for my life to end. I was so done. And it sounds crazy, and I've told this story before, but it felt like this angelic being, which I don't think, I don't know what it was, but it came down and it wrapped itself around me. And it's like it vacuumed up all of the substance out of my body and I passed out. And I woke up hours later and I felt amazing. It didn't stop me. I kept going. And I'll bear the... I'll just keep going because I'll spare you all the drunkalog and shift forward, fast forward to what happened to get me sober today because I had quit multiple times. It never lasted very long. But, you know, five years ago, life began to get beyond heavy. And I would say actually before that, seven years, when Frank, my adopted dad, was killed, I spiraled out. I spiraled out. I got back on um, anxiety meds and I was taking clonazepam and I was drinking like a lot. I basically would wake up and drink like a French press full of coffee, which is like six cups or something. And I would take um, like Fenfen, which is like Fentraman, like speed to do my day. And I would work and I would wonder, why do I have all these crazy clients? I couldn't understand, but I was definitely out of my mind. And then I would work and come home at night and I would drink myself into a stupor and take clonazepam and drink mezcal and beer or whatever was around. And then I couldn't take it anymore. My body was breaking down. My body was a wreck. And I had some friends who kind of intervened at this point, not because they were worried about me physically, but at that point I stopped believing. I stopped believing in creator. I stopped believing in spirit. I stopped believing that there was anything out there. And that spiritual meltdown was when it shifted. So... It's it's kind of a gnarly bottom when you've lost everything, including the one thing that you did believe in, which was a faith that something bigger was out there. So they came and got me, and they brought me to a sweat. And it was in so intense. I had... Um, 
multiple soul retrievals. Not intentionally, it just happened. And then from there, I went up to the bay and I did. um, Now I know things are different for everybody and I don't believe in using things to avoid your process. But I or abusing certain medicines. You have to be really careful with that. And I know that that can be an issue as well, especially if you're not willing to really deal with the issue at hand, the root of it. But I saw no other way to get help. And a healer there offered me a combo ceremony, which is the frog venom. And I did it. And again, I still had no intentions of getting sober. It was just like, make the pain stop. So at that time, it did the job. It cleared me of all of the substance in my body. But without the mental support, it wasn't going to do much for me, except it did do a couple of things. I have to say I'm pretty amazed at how it was like a reboot for my system. And it opened up this creative channel of mine that had been closed for years. And that's where my second deck, Nature Nurture, came from because I could finally create again. Like I wasn't able to pick up a pen or draw for years. And then that happened. And I was able to bring forth this deck that had been haunting me for a while. Now, another thing that happened during that time was, as some of you are probably familiar with what was going on at Standing Rock, I had no channel for my anger, my frustration, my rage. And I went full on with organizing fundraisers and you know, silent art auctions, raising a bunch of money for legal defense and also being available for frontline support. So anyone who was on the front line or doing work on the grounds there, I made myself available to be of counsel to those people. So there was a lot of being actively participating virtually on the phone and then on the ground in L.A., but I, I, you know, that, and it, it was like all of this repressed anger and, and frustration being channeled into activism. And it, it killed me. You know, I was miserable. I was so ornery and acting out and just snapping at everyone and everything if, if my focus wasn't there. And at the same time, dealing with these unspoken personal issues about my own identity and not knowing my paternity still and not feeling a part of and being excluded by different communities um, and so many painful things. When the election that year happened, I, mind you, even though I've been sober, I have been stockpiling all my clonazepam. So I said, you know, if this election goes a particular way, I'm fucking out. So when the news came in that a certain person had won, 
I went to the cabinet because I was, I was done. I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be here for this. So when I opened the cabinet and pulled the pills out, I heard a voice and some people call it like a God shot or something or whatever, but, and I don't know what that voice was, but it just said, wait till tomorrow. I was like, fine, fine. But I don't think this feeling of devastation and pain and suffering is going to go away tomorrow, but fine, I'll humor you, whoever you are. And that evening, a friend who I'd worked with, he recorded my old band, um, reached out to me and was like, how are you doing? And for the first time in my whole life, I was honest and I said, I'm not good. I don't want to be here. And he asked me if I wanted to go to a meeting and I said, of course not. (laughs) But something in me said, just do it. And of course it was tomorrow. I was like, fine. So I went. And that was my introduction to a 12-step program. Now, I know that the 12-step programs are not for everyone, but I needed the structure because I had nothing and no one. You know, I'm not as active in the program um, since the pandemic. I had a lot of um, internalization of things, and I'm not, you know, I'm not even sure if I'm going to go back to it. But I'm not anti it. So what it's like today is this. And I'll tell you, after years of doing service work, um, especially the first uh, three and a half years of my sobriety, I was sponsoring people. I was doing commitments. I was doing driving people to and from meetings and showing up when I could. Um, absolutely said yes to everything. And I spoke a lot. And I do miss the community aspect of it. But when it transitioned to online, it just, it didn't, I'm online so much for work and things like that. It was just very hard to stay focused for me. Um, and again, it's, it's a wonderful program, especially if you have nothing. I am still sober and I still have struggles. I have struggles when I have big feelings, good and bad, not just bad. When, when things are good too, I go into terror mode and fear. And when things are bad or out of control feeling, there is this want and desire to pick up. I think the best thing when you are in those moments is to reach out to those that understand you, that feel you, that don't pass judgment, that can just hold sacred containers for you. If you're on this journey, I commend you because it is brave and it is challenging. But to feel everything authentically is such a gift. So I wanted to share that with you. I wanted to share what it's like and let you know that if you are a magical person, that you can be magical and sober too, because I know that's a big thing too. A lot of people have issues with, you know, oh, well, 
sobriety. Um, we don't know if we can do it because I need this for magic or I need to be high or I need to be this. I think for everyone else's, I think everyone else's um, journey is different, right? And yeah, like the God stuff with AA definitely um, as like a man God turned me off. But when I realized that I could make it a higher power to my own understanding, that really helped me connect to an energy, you know, instead of thinking of this like one kind of Catholic Christian God. So I think our journeys are so unique and they should be. But hopefully, through time, we all find a way that works for us and that's best. Thank you all for being with me on my journey. I'm really grateful to be here, even though life can be full of heartache. There are these beautiful moments that fill you up and recharge you again. May you all be well. May you all be understood and supported and free from those things that wish to chain you to less than desirable aspects of life and self. Much love and blessed be. Mm-hmm.